Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Many police who shoot and kill people carry heavy emotional baggage. This one round in my community that just like shattered everything I thought my law enforcement career would be and then feel like you ruined a family. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll look at whether more training and de-escalation tactics can help prevent many of these shootings and visit a police program to help children overcome trauma. We'll also explore the work of Marsden Hartley, whose art defined the rocky coast, the looming hills, and the working men of Maine. That image of Maine as being this anti-modern place where people still live a simple life is an image that still plays very strongly, I think, in expectations, viewers' expectations, visitors' expectations. Plus, is it treasure or trash, antique or secondhand? We'll take a trip to the Brimfield Flea Market. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, the painter of Maine tells a story of a New England that's both real and imagined. That image of Maine as being this anti-modern place where people still live a simple life is an image that still plays very strongly, I think, in expectations, viewers' expectations, visitors' expectations. We'll look at Marsden Hartley's Maine, but first... Many of the high-profile police shootings of the last few years across the U.S. have a disturbing common thread. They happen within a few minutes or even a few seconds after police arrive on the scene. Several states require de-escalation training for their police officers meant to avoid situations where deadly force is viewed as the only resort. In New England, three of our six states have such mandates and three don't. Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting worked with APM reports to examine de-escalation state by state for a report that aired in May. I spoke with correspondent Curtis Gilbert. Welcome to Next. It's great to be here. First of all, explain what is police de-escalation training? Well, the idea behind police de-escalation training is that if police officers can learn to slow down a confrontation, um, they can get through a confrontation with someone going through, say, a mental health crisis or any kind of emotional crisis without having to resort to using force, and in particular, deadly force. Um, Some experts in policing have looked at uh, a lot of sort of tragic police shootings, uh, shootings of unarmed people, and there's a common denominator, which is a lot of them unfold in a very short period of time. So the idea here is that if you can um, slow down the action, if you can use uh, verbal uh, kind of communication skills, you can use less force, and um, everyone can go home safe at the end of the day. We at APM Reports went through training records at hundreds of police departments around the country, and we found that most departments did hardly any training in that area. And that kind of led us to the question of, well, who has the authority to order a police chief to put your officers through a certain kind of training? And it turns out most states do have that power. 
So you go state by state, and you have a, mm-hmm. a beautiful map, which we'll link to on our website, nextnewengland.org. L- let's go state by state throughout sure. our, our region in New England. And there's three states that do have some sort of a mandate Maine, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, they have all instituted training of one sort or another. Yes, and this is requirements for existing police officers. In Connecticut, it was the legislature that stepped in and imposed this requirement. Maine and Massachusetts are actually fairly unusual if you look nationwide uh, in that they, uh, they, they have a board that sets training requirements for police in the state that change every year. So in other words, this year we're going to put everyone through a certain amount of de-escalation training or dealing with the mentally ill. And the next year we might put everyone through um, implicit racial bias training. Uh, right. And that's pretty unusual. Most states do not uh, uh, set sort of statewide training requirements that change year to year. Um, but uh, an interesting note about Massachusetts. So Massachusetts sets those training requirements every year. Uh, for local police departments, but they have no mechanism to actually ensure the police departments are doing this. So the, does that make sense? They, they can't follow up and, and audit the police departments and said, did you do this training? So the only way it would come out that someone, a police department hadn't done the required training is maybe in the course of a lawsuit or something. That's really the only enforcement mechanism for those training requirements in the state of Massachusetts. And there's no centralized database or anything that you can keep track of. You're essentially oh. just assuming that the that that these various departments are doing what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I'm sorry. You heard me uh, in, involuntarily sigh when you said centralized database yeah. because databases of police training records have been my life for the last several months. Um, some states do have a centralized database. Uh, we did a lot of work in Georgia, which has an excellent database documenting the training of every officer in the state. Um, other states, it's really a department by department thing. And every department, some department may departments may only have paper records. Um, one department I contacted literally sent me certificates. When I asked for the training records, they sent me like, here's the certificate of completion for Officer Johnson. You know, so um, it really varies state to state. Sometimes there's stronger oversight uh, in some states than others. There are states like Maine, Massachusetts, and Connecticut that require some sort of de-escalation training. But when I look at a requirement of, say, in Maine, two hours per year, or in Connecticut, three hours every three years, that doesn't sound to me, at least, like a whole lot of training. It's not. It really isn't. I mean, as you heard me mention, the gold standard is a 40-hour training in this this area. So an hour or two isn't much. But if you require every uh, officer in your state to do an hour or two or three of this kind of training, you're well ahead of most states. Most states require nothing. And those 34 states include Vermont, New Hampshire, and Mm -hmm. Rhode Island. What can you tell us about those states? So Vermont and New Hampshire are two states that have the power. There's a board in place in each of those states that have the power to impose a requirement like this administratively. And this was one of the other revelations of a reporting, which was that for most states, it doesn't take a change in the law uh, in order to impose a new training requirement for police. There's um, generically, they're called post boards, peace officers, standards and training boards. They have different acronyms in every state, but that's the generic. And uh, they could just, with a ma- wave of a magic wand, essentially require every officer in the state to go through a certain amount of training. Now, most post boards do not exercise that power, particularly when it comes to de-escalation training. We talked to Mark Bedanza, who is the commander of the police academy in New Hampshire. And he said that 
in the case of New Hampshire, they really aren't interested in passing unfunded mandates on every law enforcement agency in the state. And so if we start to mandate hundreds of different things to the department, then that's going to cost them money, which would then cost your taxpayers money. And so we have to be very careful at saying you will do this without supporting it financially. So Vermont, New Hampshire could do it uh, administratively, but they haven't. Rhode Island, uh, it doesn't have an administrative board that's empowered to set new training requirements for police. So in, in Rhode Island, it would take an act of the legislature. It's just a question of priorities. Is this a priority to train in de-escalation or isn't it? And in the case of many police departments, we found they hadn't set a very high priority on it. Jack Rodolico of New Hampshire Public Radio did some reporting on this issue for you, and he introduces us to a police sergeant from the town of Hillsborough named Mark Philibert. Never in my head did I think I was going to be the police officer that showed up to a house on somebody's worst day ever. That day was May 19th, 2011. It was just past midnight when Philibert and a number of other police showed up at a log cabin on a rural road. It was pouring rain. According to a report from the attorney general's office, a woman inside had been misusing prescription drugs. She had guns and had threatened to kill herself and her stepson. When shots rang out in the house, Philibert was the first through the door. He says his training instructed him to speak loudly and clearly to the family, to check corners for threats. And he says that training dictated how he responded when he saw 47-year-old Shelley Narayan. So she was raising a uh, large revolver at me. Uh, I raised my pistol up and shouted a few times for her to drop it, but she continued to raise it up and the barrel was pointed at my chest. So I fired one round. Her arms went down. She went limp. Philibert shot Shelly Narayan in the neck, killing her. The gun she had pointed at him was not loaded. That was five years ago, and Philibert says the memory still pops up all the time, like when he smells something that reminds him of the log cabin or on a night when the rain is pouring down. In Philibert's 15 years on the Hillsborough Police Force, the bullet that killed Shelly Narayan was the only shot he's fired. But he has fired many more shots in the line of duty. He's done two tours in Afghanistan with the National Guard. Hundreds of rounds in war, I don't even think about, but this one round in my community, and I I say it's my community, I went to high school here, I love this town, Um, that just like shattered everything I thought my law enforcement career would be and then feel like you ruined a family. That's a feeling police training did not prepare him for. That's Jack Rodolico from NHPR reporting. I'm back with Curtis Gilbert from APM Reports. As you hear that story, Curtis, I'm sure you heard many other stories as you were reporting on police de-escalation training around the country and some of the impact on cops who do pull the trigger and kill people. Oh, yeah. I think that it's not uncommon for a police officer to suffer from that kind of post-traumatic stress. Um, And remember that most police officers will never fire their guns in the line of duty, you know. So um, it's a very traumatic situation. And and I would say that when it comes to de-escalation training, um, you know, even its strongest proponents acknowledge that when you have a situation like that where there's a person holding a gun, and yes, in this case, the gun wasn't loaded, but obviously the officer couldn't have known that, you don't have very many options because a gun can uh, take your life so quickly 
it, it's it's very difficult uh, in those situations. But there are, you know, a, a significant number, although certainly not the majority of cases, but when, when people are shot by police aren't armed or they're armed only with a knife or some kind of improvised weapon. And in those uh, situations, uh, experts say that buying yourself more time using communication skills could potentially resolve that situation. Curtis Gilbert is a correspondent with APM Reports. He and his team worked with Reveal and the Center for Investigative Reporting on this investigation into police de-escalation training around the country. Curtis, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. When police get a domestic violence call or respond to a drug overdose, children are often there when officials arrive. In Manchester, New Hampshire, police lieutenants ran the numbers and they found that in one single year, 2015, 400 children had been on scene during such calls. Research shows that kids exposed to trauma are more likely to be violent and to be victims of violence later in life. Now, as Emily Corwin reports, the Manchester Police Department is trying to do something about that. We'll head out and uh, we'll head down to the south end. Okay. Police Sergeant Peter Marr is walking with two social workers across the police department parking lot. One is carrying a colorful bag of toys. The trio piles into an unmarked police car. They're off to go do something police don't usually do. They're going back to the scene of a crisis where police were called earlier this week. This time, they're not going to enforce any laws. They're going to see if they can help. My name is uh, Nicola Du. I'm a lieutenant with the Manchester Police Department. I oversee the juvenile and domestic violence units here, and I've been with the police department since 1995. Nicole Ledoux works back at the station. She's a fast-talking, down-to-business police lieutenant who helped crunch the numbers that initially inspired what is now a grant-funded pilot project. I mean, can you imagine responding to a call where you have a six-year-old who's been the 911 caller because their parent has overdosed? So you go, police fire, EMS, you deal with the overdose because that's your job. But then you're in your mind, you're thinking, man, that's a lot for that kid to handle. Ledoux sees kids at overdose scenes, homicides, assaults, and more than anything else, at domestic violence incidents. Maybe a perpetrator gets arrested. Maybe the victim gets services. But the kids, she says, they're ignored. And it's not the police's job to help bystanders. But Ledoux says she sees the consequences all the time. You know, 10 years into your career, you go to a domestic violence call, and it's, it's now an adult who was a kid, you know, at a domestic violence call you went to 10 years ago. Um, it's well documented. This, I mean, you, if that's what you grow up in, and nobody steps in and says that's not the normal behavior between two people who are cohabitating, you know, and having a family, then you don't know that. So how do you interrupt a cycle of violence? Steve DeRost's Mental Health and Arts Therapy Center is inside of a castle. Outside, there are turrets and stone facing. Inside, you're greeted by this music and a seven-foot replica of a knight in armor. What do you call this guy? Sir Richard. He stands here and you know, makes sure that um, everyone is safe. DeRost specializes in childhood trauma. Up a staircase in a room full of toys and coloring books, he tells me, yes, there is a way to overcome it. There's really a uh, amazing thing that happens when we really feel heard, and when we really feel witnessed. Um, we we feel more grounded. We feel more safe. Um, and of course, a lot of times, domestic violence is a family secret. 
Manchester police are now working to get kids to this place and others like it. Places where, ideally along with their parents, kids can be seen and heard by professionals. It's not easy. Parents in crisis can be too overwhelmed to call mental health centers for their kids. That's why for four hours twice a week, a police officer and two social workers return to the doorsteps of recent 911 calls. One year into a three-year pilot project. Tonight, Sergeant Peter Marr will knock on doors and say this. Hey, uh, how you doing? I'm uh, Sergeant Peter Marr with the Manchester Police Department. Uh, We're here because your child according to our police reports, was witness to uh, a traumatic event. Usually, that's where Sergeant Marr steps aside and Angela Deliani steps in. So then I would say that I'm the advocate from the Manchester Community Health Center, and um, there are services that are available for the children to deal with the traumatic event that they witnessed. Most of all, Deliani is hoping to get the parent's signature. It's, it's the way we can help them. That way, the police can send the family's contact information to a health center, and the center can follow up. It takes the burden off of the parent, and it makes it more likely kids will get help. Emily Corwin of New Hampshire Public Radio reporting. Coming up, art that defined the rocky coast, the looming hills, and the working men of Maine. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund. Supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. In the permanent collection of the Wadsworth Athenaeum, the nation's oldest art museum in downtown Hartford, Connecticut, is a painting by Marsden Hartley that stops me in my tracks every time I see it. Three colorful figures standing on a pier, massive strapping working men with comically broad shoulders. Down East young blades pictured with the images of their trade, lobsters, fish, and logs. With that painting in mind, I was not surprised to learn that Bruce Springsteen, the poet of working-class America, is one of Hartley's biggest admirers and collectors. But Hartley's career, stretching from the early years of the 20th century to his death in 1943, also celebrated the vast and wild scenery of New England, specifically his home state of Maine. The exhibition Marsden Hartley's Maine arrives at the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine this weekend. I talked with Donna Cassidy, professor of art and American and New England studies at the University of Southern Maine, who co-authored the exhibition book, about the artist's relationship with this place. Donna Cassidy, welcome to Next. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Can we talk for a moment about Hartley's early life uh, in Maine, in part, and how it helped to form him, the the years that he spent mostly in Maine growing up. Yeah, he was born in Lewiston, Maine, which, for those of you that don't know, is a old textile manufacturing town. And Hartley's parents, who were English immigrants, came to Lewiston to work in the mills. Uh, his father, in particular, had a job uh, in one of the textile mills, although he really struggled in keeping a job in the mills. 
And Hartley was born in Lewiston to a growing and large family. I think he was actually the the, the last son, uh, the last and only surviving son, really, to be born. And they lived a kind of hard scrabble life, uh, as so many immigrants did. And when Hartley was eight years old, his mother died. And this was a, an event that he would identify over and over again in his life as being so monumental to him, so profoundly affecting to him, and that he really said that, you know, it was at this moment that his life as a lonely person had begun. And that sense of loss that he felt at his mother's death when he was age eight was something that really shaped his identity. And I think also really shaped his attitude towards Maine. I mean, he certainly was someone who had a love-hate relationship with Maine. And this moment of his mother's death can certainly be identified as that moment, that initial moment when he began to have these very uncomfortable feelings about home, about family, about, about Maine. And it was after the family, after his mother died, the family actually began to break up. I mean, he joins his father and his stepmother, who had moved to Cleveland. And that was, um, you know, that was the moment when Hartley kind of exits Maine for the first time and spends his kind of early artistic life actually in Cleveland, studying with some landscape painters there, eventually getting support from a patron to study in New York. And that, that eventually brings him back to Maine. How do you see this love-hate relationship with Maine showing up in the paintings themselves? Maybe you can describe a, a work that might illustrate for us what you see as that love and hate relationship. Well, I think if, you've, if we particularly focus on some of his early landscape paintings, that comes across, I think, very dramatically. His early landscapes of of Maine focus on the western mountains. Uh, he painted at that time and around Lovell, Maine, and in Stoneham, Maine, as well. And he painted paintings that had these very high mountains that really fill the picture plane, and the the, the mountains just really rise up and dwarf anything below. And those mountain landscapes are uh, – he created those mountain landscapes in two different kinds of vocabularies, one of which was very post-impressionist. And a painting that he did, which is in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston called Carnival of Autumn that he did in 1908, is just brilliantly painted. It has vivid reds and yellows and purples. The colors are purely applied to the canvas, and they just jump out at you and create a, a vivid luminosity. This It's an image of, of fall, really, but it's all of those you know vivid colors of a, a New England fall that just light up the canvas. And it's a painting that's really ebullient and uplifting and filled with light. And the next year, Hartley's painting... A dark mane, uh, painting a painting by him called the Dark Mountain is a great example where that large mountain that fills the canvas isn't filled anymore with vivid reds and yellows and violets, but it's 
it's almost like a black curtain that has just fallen down into the landscape. And it, at the base of the mountain are these craggy, bare trees that create this image of desolation. And along with that are these deserted farm farmhouses that, again, add to that sense of desolation and loss and a, a New England and a Maine that was really on the decline. I'm looking right now at, at the Dark Mountain as reproduced in, in the book, and it has this feeling of claustrophobia that you don't usually associate with a, with a broad landscape. But because of, as you say, this dark curtain of a mountain that looms over these tiny buildings, it really does feel as though you're, you're trapped someplace that you might not get out of. Absolutely. And this this image of the dark New England is an image that he carried with him throughout his career. When he was in Paris in 1924, he was invited to be uh, part of an exhibition of American artists at um, one of the galleries in Paris during this time. And he chose to paint two landscapes of Maine. And these were landscapes that were um, very much like those early dark mountain landscapes. And we see the same kind of vocabulary, that high, black, dark mountain, these bare landscape forms, the uh, the, 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 the um, deserted farmhouses in the bottom. So he's remembering this Maine when he's painting in Paris in 19, 1924 at a moment when he was being encouraged to return to Maine by, by critic Paul Rosenfeld, who wrote in a, a, a book called The Port of New York uh, in 1924 that Hartley, to really regain his true self, had to come back to Maine. At the same time, Hartley had, had requested some photographs from his patron, Alfred Stieglitz, and among the photographs that Stieglitz sent were photographs of these early early dark landscapes. So here we have, you know, Hartley in Paris painting these dark landscapes. And then, you know, jump ahead to Hartley's late period in Maine from 1937 to 43. And we find him again, painting seascapes that are nocturnal seascapes, one work called Off the Banks at Night. And it's dark and, and gloomy and haunting and just, you know, filled with a kind of ominous quality of death. And as you say, claustrophobia. And in that particular landscape, you even have these kind of jagged rocks in the foreground that look as, look as though they're, they're getting ready to, you know, to attack the viewer. <laughs> but yeah. I'm wondering about that connection, though, with Maine and the people of Maine, a place that is known as vacation land, a place that obviously the people who live there, have a great pride in, but that people visit because of the beautiful scenery that, in part, he made famous. It feels as though there's a little bit of a tension between the way he saw these beautiful landscapes uh, and the way a picture postcard might want to show Maine. His his works are definitely not the picture postcard Maine. And in his late career, he writes, uh, I think it was to his niece, that he was not a book of the month club club painter, <laughs> and which is, I think, really, really quite telling. At the same time, the imagery that he's painting is is definitely the imagery that populated picture postcards 
and the tourist literature of the time. And and I think, you know, Hartley's work, uh, even his early paintings of the Western Maine Mountains were done at a time when those sections of Maine were becoming more and more available for tourism. So he's very aware of, of, tour, of tourism in Maine and, to, and writes about vacation land, sending shivers up and down his spine um, that he was so kind of repelled by the commercial aspect. But he was certainly taking advantage of that commercial aspect as well. So he paints, you know, waves crashing against the shore. He paints uh, the congregational churches. He paints lobsters. There's a wonderful still life in the book and in the exhibition that this this brightly brightly painted uh, red lobster, just, you know, ready to be eaten, you know, freshly boiled live, you know, looking almost like... uh, a kind of, you know, advertisement for, for Maine that, you know, again, becomes known as vacation land around the same time Hartley's painting these late, these late works, like, like Lobster on Blackboard. There's a wonderful painting of the lighthouse, uh, again, a kind of image that populated uh, the postcards of the area. In fact, Hartley had a postcard of Portland Headlight and paints a painting called the lighthouse that is based on on Portland Headlight, but it's it's so unlike that postcard. In the postcard, you have a very uh, stable, vertical uh, tower that is the that is the headlight that's you know ready to help people, you know, help boats ashore. <laughs> In Hartley's rendition, we have you know ferocious waves crashing against the lighthouse and against the shore in front of the lighthouse the boulders in front of the lighthouse. And the lighthouse itself seems to kind of tilt a little bit but <laughs> off almost, center. But almost as though the way that you would see it if approaching by boat on a on a rocky uh, day where it wouldn't, the exactly. landscape would be tilting side to side. So it does look like you are at sea on an ominous day. It, exactly. You have a very different kind of, of point of view than is being offered by by the tourist literature. So I think there's, again, this kind of duality in, Hart- in Hartley's work. He's, he's drawing from the popular imagery of the time, but remaking this using, of course, modernist visual language, expressionist style, or very rough in, in his late works, very rough and rugged uh, style in which you know figures are distorted, human bodies are distorted. And Again, yet he's you know really playing on on stereotypes of the region. Um, one of the great figure paintings in the show is Canuck Yankee Lumberjack at Old Orchard Beach, Maine, and he also is of course you know playing on other types. The in his early drawings of the people of Maine, he paints the old maid um, a, again a, a stereotypical figure in New England literature and art at the turn of the century. Uh, in his late figure paintings, he focuses on the fisher folk and the fishermen and, and, and presents them in very masculine, rough images. Um, and he paints hunters. And again, this is the time in you know, L.L. Bean is you know, making its name um, and presenting paintings on it, the cover of it, their catalogs that show these, again, rough and rugged, uh, manly men of Maine who, you know, hunt, who fish, who are very physical. And so, you know, Hartley's, again, drawing from this common 
uh, lexicon of, of icons of Maine, but transforming them and making them his own. And I think this is certainly where um, you know, his vision comes in. That's why this, this exhibition, I think, is so stunning because people kind of see the familiar, but then the see, as they look more closely, see that familiarity dissolve and disappear and see much more that, that, that Hartley is presenting. You, you talked earlier about uh, regionalism and the idea of creating a type of uh, New England style. I, I'm wondering how you feel Marsden Hartley influenced how we view what New England is today. Well, I think that, you know, his vision of New England, his vision of Maine is one that so many outsiders, so many tourists uh, expect to see when they come here. Um, that sense, too, of, you know, of the, you know, the waves crashing in against the shore. I mean, he's really continuing that vision that was begun by Winslow Homer, right, in the, in the late part of the 19th century. He he continues, kind of reinvents that and creates that kind of expectation of what we would see. Certainly in his presentation of the, of the types of people, um, the fisher folk. I mean, I think, you know, the type of New England that he presents by and large is what, what I would call an anti-modern vision of Maine. We don't see any of the Lewiston mills. You know, we don't see any industry. I mean, there is an allusion to that, certainly in some of his logging paintings, but those logging paintings also can be so easily read as just images of nature, you know. And so there's this absence of of modernity, the you know, telephone lines, or he comes to Portland, but he doesn't paint the city of Portland. He paints the headlight. He paints the area outside the city and, and Old Orchard Beach. So that image of Maine, and Maine especially, as being this anti-modern place where people still live a simple life is an image that still plays very strongly, I think, in expectations, viewers' expectations, visitors' expectations, and even, I think, to a certain degree for us who live here, um, we certainly value those, those same qualities as well. Donna Cassidy, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. The exhibition Marsden Hartley's Maine is at the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine, starting this weekend. Coming up, is it trash, treasure, antique, or secondhand? We'll take you to the Brimfield Flea Market, next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness.
Of the 530 refugees who arrived in the New Haven, Connecticut region last year, more than 270 were children. Many have just wrapped up their first year in a U.S. school. As part of our project Facing Change, WNPR's Diane Orson reports on an arts program that's partnered with a local resettlement agency to create a special after-school violin class for the young refugees. The regular school day is over, and it's time for violin class to begin. A girl is leading her peers in the helicopter game. They're practicing how to place a violin bow on the string. Helicopter up. She gently brings the bow down. Landing. And it's time to start making music. Students in this class range in age from 8 to 14, and all are refugees from Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Their teacher turns now to a technique called pizzicato. As the children pluck the open strings on their instruments, she begins to play a tune. Teacher Yaida Matikubova is a senior resident musician with Music Haven. The program provides free musical instruments, one-on-one lessons, and group ensemble coaching, plus trips to concerts, all without charge, to more than 75 low-income students in New Haven. Matikubova says the idea for this class began when Music Haven students learned that refugee families were being resettled in New Haven. When we heard um, about refugees fleeing from their homeland, going by foot, trying to escape the war zone, the conversation was brought up in our class. And initially, the kids are the ones who started the idea of wanting to meet the refugees and possibly play music for them. My name is Nurhan, and I am uh, 12 years old, and I am from Iraq. How long have you been here? Mm, One year. I like music, and I like to play with uh, the instruments. And tell me about your teacher. I love her. She is smiling. Even we are making mistakes, she is smiling. The program aims to help refugee children make new connections. It may also help them academically, psychologically, and socially. James Catterall is emeritus professor at UCLA and director of the Centers for Research on Creativity. That deep engagement and liking for what they're up to makes a real difference. And I can imagine for a refugee population, having a, I mean, a haven's a pretty good word. It's a place for the children to sort of emotionally and physically hang out and enjoy themselves and enjoy music. So that's a start. Music also benefits spatial reasoning, and that may help in learning a new language. Back in class, teacher Mati Kobova encourages her students to sing. We are learning music from just simple tunes from Syria or Afghan melodies, as well as Twinkle, Twinkle Little Star. Now I stand to take a bow, one and two and three, that's hot! My name is Ahmed, uh, I'm 14 old, I'm from Syria. I like to play violin because you can learn more. English and everything. Ahmad al-Zawabi, his sister Noor, and their family recently arrived in New Haven. Noor says her brother practices his violin diligently. Every day I listen for him because uh, I think uh, the music language, all the world understands this language. 
So I very like that my brother uh, learn violin or learn anything about music. Teacher Yaira Machikabova was born in Uzbekistan and came to the U.S. at age 16 with a backpack and her violin. She says she understands the kinds of social challenges these young people face. And when I first came here, I didn't know the language and I didn't know the culture. And it took me some time to learn. And I find that through music, it brings us together and we can really embrace and um, rely on that in the times when it's more difficult. Matya Kobova says she hopes the classes will help to instill in these young refugees a love of music, a feeling of belonging, and a greater sense of confidence about their place in the world. That's WNPR's Diane Orson reporting. In the 1954 film Brigadoon, the protagonists discovered a magical village that only appears for one day every hundred years. Brimfield, Massachusetts is kind of like that. The town only has about 3,500 permanent residents, but for a week in May, July, and September each year, the town transforms into a bustling tent city known as the Brimfield Antique Flea Market. The market dates back to the 1950s and boasts over 250,000 visitors these days, stretching half a mile down Route 20. At Brimfield, you can find anything from a statue of the Buddha to your library's old card catalog to action figures from the original Star Wars movies. At a market like this, the stuff comes with stories. And next producer, Andrew Moraskin, found plenty on her visit last September. What is the definition of an antique? An antique is at least 100 years old. Some people have different definitions, but most of the dictionaries, 100 years old or older. What's the difference between an antique and an old piece of crap? Well, ten times the price. If it's older yeah. than you, it's an antique. <laughs> Are you here looking for something in particular? For goodies. Just for goodies. No particular thing. Whatever catches my eye, I fall in love and I get it. The glitter, glass. The glass usually does it for me. Do you have a budget? I never have a budget. He has a budget. I'm Tal and this is Hannah. Usually the principle is we, we don't bring in anything before we throw every, something out. So do you have like a purge before you come to Brimfield? Do you say, okay, honey, wait, what are we getting rid of? This is, this is what we, this is the dynamics. This, <laughs> I'm, I'm for that, but she, Hannah can't give up, you know, so easily. <laughs> so it, it gets accumulated because nothing is worth fight. My name is Jamie Carpenter. I'm from Lancaster, Massachusetts. What does it mean that it's, that it's antique? Well, you know, it just means it's had like this big long life and it survived all this time. But when I look at some of the pieces, like we have a Sheridan table over there, that the turnings on the leg, I mean, to think that they were done 300 years ago, you know, and there's some damage here. But I mean, I mean, think 300 years ago, and there's, there's no electricity, and there's no, you know? So that's, that's what I love. Is there anything that you have here that has a, a story to it that you really love? Well, you know, we just, we've, done a lot with toys for years and years and years and just every person you talk to that collects toys has their story about how they played with it and what they did when they were a kid you know and then 
a lot of times it was, I played with them and killed them and now I need to replace them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one's a Millennium Falcon. That's $85. That's from the first movie. And they continue to make them for each movie so they get later ones, you know. This one is the Y-Wing. That's $65. Some of the vehicles for Star Wars go in the hundreds because they're harder and rarer to find. You have any crazy flea market stories? I didn't recognize Diane Keaton once. And I was talking to Diane Keaton and sold her a bunch of stuff and it took me a couple of shows to actually realize who she was. And now we've become friends over, the, over time. Uh, Brimfield is interesting, but they're super overpriced. It's Yankee price. So what, what is your full name? Yves Bernard Martin. I grew up in Paris, but I moved to New York when I was 20. Uh, my father was freed from a labor camp in Germany by American. Uh, I grew up, everything, the best stuff was American-made. The post-war years, you know, if you had an American car, you were either very rich or a hood. And the stuff, the mixer, you name it, whatever, the pliers, everything made in America was top gun, would last for a lifetime. And then uh, democracy moved in. Democracy was there, but suddenly it took a turn where it's millions of people. We were less people 50 years ago, and everybody wants the same stuff. Look how many iPhones are being sold each time a new one comes out. I mean, it's mind-boggling. I had to ask you about something that I saw. Why do you carry Nazi emblems and uh, memorabilia? Um, well, it's part of history to start with. Um, there's a lot of collectors for it. It sells. What do people say? Like, when? why did they say that they want it? Well, some it's for a piece of history and others that collect it. Some people just collect the German stuff, but as well, other people collect all military type stuff too. Jewish Holocaust museums oh. have come and um, they especially look for things with names on them. Um, I don't have any opinions. There's a lot of stuff I sell that I don't necessarily want to sell, but if people are out there looking for it, that's my business. I have to, or I don't have a business and I don't make any money. What do people want secondhand keys for? To make jewelry and sometimes to fit old locks up. What do you mean to fit old locks up? Sometimes they don't have a key for their lock and they come and try keys and they fit their locks. Seriously? I always thought every key was unique. Well, you figured wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Because there would be a hundred trillion keys out there if everyone was unique. So if somebody wanted to break into my house, they could just come in here, buy a bunch of keys, and, and then try, could try and, pro and probably not break into your house. Most of them, if they want to break into your house, they look at the lock and uh, they pick the lock and go right on in. Most of them do like they did me about a, eh, it's been a month ago now. They kicked the glass, broke the 100-year-old door. What item do you own that you love the most? Nothing. You're not attached to stuff? It sounds like you're no. attached to the door. No, it's just 
that it was old, it was an antique. Any antique, whether it's mine or yours or any antique, can't be replaced. So if you destroy it, that's, that's just like killing a person because he took antiquity away. What, what's your name? Dave. What's the story behind the centaur lady at the front? The horsewoman. The horsewoman? I bought her here. I bought her here from another dealer who had her, had no information on her. But Rosie wants to put wings on her. Right? <laughs> Make her look like a, the winged horse. Oh, peg, a pegasus. A pegasus. But it's a real, it's a real carousel bottom with a uh, mannequin top. So it's, it's a folk art piece. What would you like to sell it for? Bottom would be 225 right now. I think if we put the wings on it, that's going to be a $1,500 piece. Why would it go up so much with the wings? Because then it wings? will become an art piece. Somebody will want that, put it in a loft, put it in a fancy place. What is your most valuable item here? I would have to say my 1966 Beetle ticket from Shea Stadium. It's worth about $1,500. Actually, it's worth $2,500, but we're only selling it for $1,500. It's signed by Sid Bernstein, who brought them to America, and it's just so collectible. I mean, there's some other bands out there, too, but the Beatles really rocked it, man. They came here, and they stormed America, you know. <laughs> Stones came, everybody came, but I still think they're the best, man. Check out photographs of Andrew Moraskin's trip to the Brimfield Antique Flea Market at nextnewengland.org. Brimfield comes back to life again starting July 11th. I wonder if the horse lady will still be there. While you're online, we'd love your feedback on our show. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England or send us an email to next at wnpr.org. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrew Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our theme music is composed by Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR.